Welcome to the Mission Manhood Podcast, where mature masculinity is celebrated and encouraged. My name is Angela Abide, and I will be your host. Every week or so, I sit down with a man who is in the men's movement, helping men grow and thrive in their masculinity, someone who is exhibiting characteristics of mature masculinity, or someone who has a perspective that might be beneficial for those who are seeking to grow and develop in that area. As a woman, I have a unique perspective as a mother and a therapist, and I hope to contribute to the conversation in those ways. Thank you so much for joining, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, I'm glad you're here. This episode was originally recorded in June of 2020, and I'm excited to share it with you here. One of the problems that I think we currently are facing is we have a lot of younger people with unearned wisdom who are particularly loud, and they're often wrong. And some of the older people with truly hard-earned wisdom are discarded or disqualified because they aren't politically correct and their views are seen as outdated or ignorant, even though they're the actual people that, that lived through some of the history that we, we scrutinize currently. This episode with Nat Bradford is an example of someone who actually has lived through the history and he shares so many nuggets of his hard-earned wisdom so that we can benefit from his perspective. Today, I'm very honored to have Nat Bradford on the podcast. Mr. Bradford, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. We met about three years ago. We met at a community meeting. How would you describe that place. Well, it's a little neighborhood Mexican restaurant. And you had been meeting there for, for years, I, I imagine. Yeah, I started meeting there with uh, Gus Lyons and uh, Richard Franklin. Uh, Gus and I were at UT together eons ago. Uh, Richard Franklin pretty involved in civic activities around the city, so we became kind of friends because he was running for different political offices. So we got kind of connected so we share a lot of views mutual views on issues so we kind of hooked up in that regard and see what we could do what what should we do as individuals to improve things that were going on in austin but everybody that comes has an opinion on something that can be improved in austin one thing that you just mentioned is that do something part of it. And I feel like that's one thing that you, you've you always held me accountable to. Like, what are you going to do? What is your thing to do? Well, my thing to do is I, I've been mentoring for about 25 years now in AISD. I started off at McCallum High School and I've been all over the district. One of the problems that motivated me to get started is we were having a lot of problems with black boys falling through the cracks and dropping out of school, primarily because of lack of interest and poor performance. It was my idea, hopefully, to motivate them, to get them to buy into the educational process and just become the best students that they could become. And I think it worked fairly well. It's It's been going on. I stay in touch 
with some of the young men. A lot of them have moved out of the state. They say that I've been beneficial to them. So I, oh, I'm sure. Them. And now I'm uh, primarily volunteering at the Pound Springs. Is that typically the age that you start in elementary school? No, I really prefer high school age kids because they can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Elementary age kids, not very interested. They don't view anything as that important right now. Hey, going to school. So you have to try to rein them in a bit, show them that what they're doing now is really, really important as to what they hope to accomplish a long range. Yeah, it's harder to get younger kids to buy into a vision, maybe. It is. But, you know, one of the things that I has been helpful with me in getting them to focus is to have them to write a fairy tale about their life. And they start off once upon a time, there was this young boy, whomever he is, and it ends, they lived happily ever after. Now, so their responsibility to fill in the blanks, what does it take for you to do to reach this goal where you're going to live happily ever after? So whatever it is, they have to come up. And usually it's help around the house, do your homework, study hard, and all sorts of things. So it does uh, get them to focus on things that they need to do to accomplish their goals. That's a really powerful exercise, I'm sure. It works pretty well. It does. Do you work with an organization or pretty much on your own, or how does that work? Well, I work through Austin Partners in Education. Uh, You have to go through them. When I started uh, at McCallum back in 1990, I think, you could just walk into school and the principal would give you a student to work with. Didn't have to do a background check, anything. Now that's all changed. Did you grow up in Austin? I am a native Austinite. I went to L.L. Campbell Elementary School. I went to Keeling Junior High School. I graduated from Elsie Anderson High School, home of the Yellow Jackets, not the Trojans. <laughs> I spent three years in the Army, came back, and uh, wanted to attend Prairie View. And my mother said, well, what's wrong with UT? And I said, well, nothing, I guess. So I attended the University of Texas beginning in 1963. Now, for people that maybe aren't aware, I mean, your whole upbringing, you were living through a lot of things that people refer back to right now, kind of the clash between UT and the city of Austin and then integration and all of that. You kind of live, you're living history. (laughs) That's a good way to phrase it. You get old, you truly are living history. It's interesting that you mentioned that because when I started school, you know, they were integrating Austin Independent School District. You know, the Brown versus the Board of Education. Yes. It just passed. All sorts of things were going on. One of the things that's been shown a lot lately because of the George Floyd incident, Emmett Till was killed when I entered middle school. Oh, gosh. So we have, we've been looking at 
ugly stuff for a long time. Yeah, so that would put you about the same age as Emmett Till, because I think he was about 14 and if you were in middle school. Yeah, I think I'm a year younger than he. Yeah. Do you remember when that was in the news at all? I do. I do, you know, and uh, his mother insisted that his pictures after the uh, beating uh, were put into Jet Magazine and <sighs> Ebony Magazine so the world could see how badly brutalized this young man's body had been destroyed. I mean, it was, it was just gruesome, hard to look at even today. Yeah. 60 plus years later is hard to look at. Yeah, I can't imagine as a young person how that affected you. Well, it was scary, but Austin was pretty segregated, so we knew to stay in our neighborhoods and not go prowling around West Austin or anything like that. Right. The interesting thing is, you know, all these years later, and we're dealing with the same thing. Nothing has changed. And that's, I'll digress a little bit. That's why the pulling down of these monuments of uh, Civil War Confederate leaders is nonsensical to me. We have made some, some changes. And I think this is my way of thinking. Okay, that's what I want, your way of thinking. If the person's who revere these uh, persons and the people who don't want them could sit down and discuss what their feelings are. You're on this side and just listen to the other side, the slave owner listening to the slave, so to speak. You know, I'm beating you over the head, but, uh, and you don't like it. And you explain to me why you don't like it and I, explain to you, well, maybe I don't have to beat you over the head. I, I don't know. There should be some way to, to resolve these things without trying to do away with history. We can't do it. Um, my grandfather, who, who died in 1942, was born a slave. Really? There's nothing you can do about that. This man was born a slave. He was emancipated and he was a farmer until he lost his eyesight. I think, in, I think he lost his eyesight in 1927. And he was kind of cared for by his, uh, some of his daughters. So that's an aspect of my history, personal history. You can't do away with it. He was born, I'm a, a product of his existence. So you start trying to erase history, you start erasing what exists. That doesn't make sense to me. And, it could have some unintended consequences of forgetting. Right. It's it's sort of like the movie uh, we've all seen, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. You know, you say, hey, if you never existed, this didn't happen. That didn't happen. It did happen. And the fact that it happened is it's important. It's how we got to where we are today. And we need to build on where we are today and not try to erase and say it didn't happen. It did. Was it all nice? No, it wasn't all nice. But it doesn't mean that we can't become better persons as a result of it. You know, a few years ago, recall 
the University of Texas renamed Simpkins Hall, which was named after a man who had uh, helped initiate the Florida Ku Klux Klan. And it didn't make sense to me to take his name off that building. Would have made sense to me to leave Simpkins Hall as it was and to make it a monument of how much we have changed. You know, when I went, when I began UT, you couldn't be in the band, you couldn't play football, you couldn't do any extracurricular activities through the university. That's not true today. Yeah. And because of that, we have made progress. I mean, if you look at UT's football team, look at UT's faculty, there's been significant progress made. So I think we need to acknowledge that and say, hey, we have come from this to this. And we now are able to communicate better. And I think if we just listen to you, I may not like everything that you did, but you did it and you're not doing it anymore. I, I don't know if you uh, saw the news the other day, they had a protest in Vider, Vider, Texas. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Vider. No, I'm not. And I didn't hear about this protest. But Vider was like the home of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Now you had these people that in Vider, Texas, protesting George Floyd's uh, murder. Now, if Vider, Texas can do this, we can all become better people. Yeah. And I know we are. So, But we can't erase anything, tear down something, because it wasn't good at the time. Uh, I was looking at television the other day, watching the news, and I think it's HBO is going to take off Gone with the Wind for a while. Yeah, I saw that. And give us a history lesson on Gone with the Wind kind of glamorized the antebellum South. Well, okay, that was then. We're not doing that now. Yeah. Let's not do away with what existed. Let's say it did exist. We understand that and move on rather than trying to get an eraser or something and they were, I don't like this thing right here. I wish we could do that, you know, because there were a lot of grades I would like to erase and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and re- redo them, you know, but we, we can't go back. So let's not make attempts at trying to correct something that was incorrect. I've got something that's popped up in my head. I'm wondering if it rings true with you. I want to run this by you. When your grandfather was a young man or a boy, I don't know how long he was in slavery, but it was that sit across from the slave owner. The slave sits across from the slave owner. And then when you were a young man going to college, it was a black and white thing still. You, had, you didn't have all the rights that white UT students had or privileges that all the white students had. And today, it seems like we're closer to being able to sit down man to man. 
and talk about like what we still need to do and acknowledge how far we've come. Is that pie in the sky or does that sound? No, no, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. And I think we're at that point where that's what we should be doing. Listen to the other person, you know, your household was different from mine. You did things differently. And let's come to a realization and an appreciation for what you did, how you did it, why you did it. And you can have an appreciation for what I did. When I was growing up, buses weren't even integrated initially when I was in elementary school and middle school. You got on the bus, you went to the back of the bus. Mm. But somewhere, I think when I was in high school, maybe junior high school, they did away with uh, blacks having to ride in the back of the bus. You could get on the bus and sit down as near the driver as possible. These are all things that have been progress. Are things perfect? No, but I think, this is my way of thinking, that if two people sit down and talk about things as they exist, we can have an appreciation for how you think, how you thought, and come to some agreement as to how we can get along better. Because now I know you. I know a little bit more about you. That That is exactly what I say. Meet me in the middle. Put down your beliefs and come sit at the table with me and let's look at each other. And you tell me about you and I'll tell you about me. I don't know about you, but whenever I've done that, we find some common ground somewhere. You know, I had, I've had a lot of weird experiences, as you can imagine, <laughs> but a lot of different experiences. And I remember joining the Army. And I joined the Army, and I was stationed in Southern California. And I was stationed with guys from Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and they were bigoted. Yeah. And I remember one guy, Stovall, I'll never forget Stovall. He was from Alabama. And Stovall hated me. But we worked together. We had to work together. And Stovall got out of the Army before I did, and we became friends. And this is a man who three years ago hated me. And I remember him crying because he knew that our friendship was coming to an end and we had become good friends. No, he was going to invite me to his house. He might have, I don't know, but he was, that was still the middle 60s, you know, going to Alabama and would not have been that comfortable for me. But the point is this guy's view of me changed over the course of several years that we worked together. And I just think that it is possible. And I think in this day and age of mass communication, we have even more of an opportunity to talk to one another. And I think we should do that and stop hanging on to something that you did 10 years ago to me or 20 years ago to me, which prevents us from moving forward. You did it, I can't, you can't undo it. I can't do away with those feelings that how hurtful it was to me, but I can get over that 
as you evolve, I'm evolving, and we both become better people. Yeah. You're learning to see each other. Yes, it's pretty simple. You know, uh, when you look at this country, the South didn't win the war, but the attitudes of Southerners was not restricted to the South. So as a result of that, you had discrimination and bigotry all over the country. I mean, New York was not a perfect place. Right. Michigan was not a perfect place. Massachusetts obviously was not a perfect place. Yet there was not legal segregation, but there was de facto segregation and that redlining went all over everywhere. You know, you couldn't buy a house in and everywhere. And that was one of the primary reasons for the, the riots in Michigan. If you remember back in the 60s when the Michigan riots rose, it was because I'm working at the Ford factory, I make a good salary, but you won't let me buy a house in that neighborhood. Yeah. We're still dealing with those kinds of things today. But I think we're making progress, and I think we can make more progress if we just take time and not hang on to some anger and hate that happened 60 years ago. I don't know how we do that. I think it has to do with, with good leadership, and I'm not sure why we've abdicated you know, to this one solution that requires everybody to be really divided. It seems to me like the wrong direction. You know, it's interesting. I think one of the greatest leaders, you remember Nelson Mandela, president of South Africa. When he became president, there were a lot of black South Africans saying, do away with the spring box. And I'm not sure if you know what the spring box were. I don't. And the spring box was this all white rugby team, which the South Africans loved. And so the blacks are saying, get, get rid of the spring box because they represent segregation, discrimination, whatever. Nelson Mandela said, no, we're going to embrace them. And he did embrace the spring box. And as a result, you were not alienating white folks who were, were the primary supporter of the spring box. But you got everybody to come to the table, and eventually, when they won another world championship, I think there was a black on the Springboks team who was able to hold up the trophy. This man was wise enough to say, hey, let's not get away and hate them because they used to hate us. Let's embrace them, and maybe they can embrace us as well. And I think he did a, a magnificent job on unifying that country. And I yeah. think somehow or another, look at what we don't like, look at what we don't understand, sit down and talk about it, and have an appreciation for what your heritage is. You can have an appreciation for what my heritage is, and we just have a little bit better understanding of one another. It seems pretty simple to me, but I don't know how to... It develops respect for each other instead of creating some kind of power differential. Well, just like, I'm going to say something from my personal perspective about you, if you don't mind, okay. because the people hearing this are not going to know this about you. 
but Mr. Bradford is the kind of man, when you walk in the room, you command respect. I don't look at you as a black man. I look at you as a man, as a father figure. You have this great father energy that's very generative. And it's very obvious to me that you are a king with a vision. You carry yourself that way. And one thing that my son has come to these meetings, these taco meetings before, just to learn and to, to see and hear the stories. And you have always just looked him right in the eye and basically, what are you doing with your life? What are you going to do? You can change the world. And you've done the same thing with me always. What are you doing? And I, you know, get disheartened or I look, you know, like I'm having a bad week. You're like, keep going, keep going. You've got to do. You can't just think you have to do. That kind of love has the power to change the world where we see each other as fellow humans and we don't see just the skin suit that we're wearing. And I think you walk in that so well. Well, thank you. We have a lot to work with. And that is the reason I volunteer and mentor these young boys, because uh, I want to give them a different perspective. My son is a trooper with DPS. And he called me yesterday, and we had a long talk about policing and whatever and whatever. He told me that some of the training that he has to uh, encounter so that when people are calling him all kinds of names, he can't react to that. He just has to kind of tough ear to anything negative that's been spewed at him. And I drove downtown the other day to not to participate in the demonstration, just look at the demonstrators. And there was a young black man in the face of these troopers right there at the governor's mansion. And he was yelling, and I couldn't hear exactly what he said, but he seemed to be very animated. And the troopers were just standing there. And, and I don't know what he was saying to them, even why he was yelling. He literally was yelling at them. And I think that, you know, sometimes we need to let these young folks, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, Black lives need to matter to ourselves as well and not look at everybody as an enemy, as an adversary. Let's not judge the book before we even know, is this a bad cop or a good cop? Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and he'll show us true colors. This is a negative on me, I guess. I worked at IBM for a lot of years. One of the young men that I worked with was a programmer as I was, and he had a, two degrees. He had an MBA from SMU, and he had a Bachelor of Science in, in Computer Science from SMU. And this guy, he was a typical frat-looking guy. Mm -hmm. He wore the madras shirts, you know, the shoes, everything. He was just looked like an SMU frat guy. And you look at him and say, oh, I cannot like that guy. <laughs> I mean, just because of his appearance, neatly combed, blonde hair, and just everything. I mean, he's just as white looking as you can get. And he attended SMU, so he's got to be bad, right? <laughs> he had a lot of strikes. So we'd be, we were co-workers, and we got a, a chance to know one another. And as it turns out, he had led some movements to make SMU more accommodating to everybody. 
he wanted black students at SMU to feel more at home and more comfortable at SMU. Civil rights worker in a strange kind of way at a strange kind of school. And I'm saying, you know, hey, this guy all wrong. Because he looked this way, he had to be that way. He had to be a bigot, right? Yeah. But he wasn't. And, and I've chastised myself for years because I'm always saying you don't look at somebody and make an opinion as to what in the world they are. I had done just that. So I apologize to him and you and everybody else <laughs> doing something that I always preach not to do. And I've done it myself. I think it's really important that you said that because as a mental health therapist studying about how the mind works, that's how our mind works. That's our natural default is to group and categorize. But because we are also conscious beings, we can override that system. And I feel like that's exactly what you did. So your, your natural mind groups him. If you think about the way you were raised and people that looked like him, probably you'd had a lot of encounters with, especially at going through school at UT when everything's segregated. It's natural that your mind, your mind is meant to protect you. So it's trying to protect you. But from your heart, you said, okay, let me sit at the table with him and give him a chance. Let me have a conversation with him. And once you overrode your system, you realized how much you actually did have in common. Yeah, we were. Our biggest dis differences after that was that he was a Mustang fan and I'm a Longhorn fan. <laughs> that was our biggest controversy after that to no one in them. But once you, like you said earlier, sat down and had that conversation with him, you realized he's someone that I can trust. He was likable. I mean, he wasn't a bad person. That just kind of proves the point of the solution that you had put forth. But, you know, just let two people sit down and talk. I uh, remembered a few years ago, you remember when Dr. Fenvis, Greg Fenvis, became president uh, of UT. And the first task he was given was moving all of the uh, statues of the Confederate heroes mm -hmm. on UT's campus. And I told my wife uh, during that time, I said, you know, I went to school about four years. I don't even remember seeing those statues. I walked by them every day. They never, ever bothered me. I did not bother them. They were just some inanimate objects that were on campus. It might have been somebody, something to somebody. They didn't mean anything to me. So I just walked right by them, and that was the way that was. Do you, are you saying that you feel like some of that stuff is sort of symbolism over substance? Like it makes you feel good, but does it really change anything? It doesn't change anything. I can walk on the campus now. The statues are gone. It's going to be the same campus. The same people, the same hearts, so to speak. But hiding them doesn't hide what happened. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of gets back to your point before, letting the past be what it is and let us all witness that and observe it. I think that's important for people to know where we've been and also the progress that we've made. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Would you feel comfortable going to West Austin now? Yeah, I, if I had a 
the need to. I mean, uh, not not the same feelings you had when you were a teenager. Oh no, I have a good friend, and I wish you could talk to him. His name is Gary Mounts. Name is Doctor Gary Mounts, and we were at UT together. And he taught. He's retired now. He taught at Pan Am, and he's a white guy. But we stay in communication after all these years. We stay in communication. Just he has to give me his views on things, and <laughs> has to have my view on the same things. And we still pretty much agree on things. He kind of grew up privileged, as white folks are, but it it didn't detract from his humanness. He's a human being. He recognizes that I'm a human being, and I think that's why our friendship has lasted 50 years. Yeah. Real quick, though, you said he's privileged as white folks are. When you talk about privilege in his particular case, do you mean like he was like upper middle class or wealthy, or what was his particular privilege? Uh, yeah, he was middle class. He wasn't rich. But he didn't have to really worry about where his next meal was coming from. He didn't have to worry about racism, no. navigating that. And no. yeah. That, that's okay. the, the minefield that uh, Black folks have to navigate is it? Yeah. Racism. And, and racism is, is something. If you could look at a person and say that's a good person or a bad person, it would make life a lot simpler. But you can't do that. And as a result of that, you just navigate where you're going, what you're doing, and how you do it. I think that we could, I could probably talk to you all day about your stories, but I wanted to mention a couple of things you started off with that I think were like super powerful. And one of those is Emmett Till's mother making the world see or allowing the world to see. That probably was a super painful personal choice for her to allow the world to see her son. But that had a tremendous effect on the country. It did. I think it opened a lot of people's eyes to the amount of brutality that was occurring in the South at that time. People being lynched, you know, the Freedom Rides, if you remember them. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I attended the African-American History Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know if you've been there, but, you know, they have remnants of one of the buses that was blown up. Who are these people and why? That kind of thing that you, you can't undo. I mean, if you're going to take down a statue of Robert E. Lee, then remove that bus. Say that that never happened as well. It happened. To show that it happened. And we need to keep Robert E. Lee up there to let us know that this guy... I don't know him, how he was personally, having had slaves and that. But there's been a, a lot of changing views on things. And we need to acknowledge and recognize the accomplishments and how powerful the changes have been. You know, when I was growing up and you'd look at the University of Alabama play football, the University mm -hmm. of Mississippi play football, I watched the University of Mississippi play a basketball game several years ago against Kentucky. That five black kids starting. You look at the Alabama football team where George Wallace literally stood in the doorway of that school and was 80% of the 
athletes on the team are black now. There's a lot of stuff that's happened for the positive, and I think we can build on that. And I think we need to acknowledge what was bad and get beyond it and not keep harping on it and trying to tear something down and say that it didn't happen. It did happen. Yeah, don't take that away from me. That happened. It happened. Let's bring it to the forefront so that my grandkids won't. They'll live in a different world. And your kids will live in a different world. We've been doing this struggle for a long time. But Yeah. What you're saying, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's okay that two things can be true. It is true that it has been horrific. It is true that we have a long way to go. But it's also true that we've made progress. That's exactly right. And let's not forget that. That gives people some hope, I think, to acknowledge that we have done better and we can do better. There's a love story, and I don't remember the title of the movie, but a university, I mean, the state of Tennessee had these laws against interracial marriage. Oh, yeah. This black woman and white man did marry, and they changed the laws. Wasn't their name Loving? I think it was something like that. I think you're right. So we need to acknowledge that we have changed. I, I'm reading a book now. It's, it's entitled From Superman to Man. And uh, when I was at UT, I took a course, anthropology course, called the Concept of Race or something. And we tried to determine the different races. And we couldn't because the thing, you know, you can't put a dog's blood in your body. Either the dog's blood is going to die or you're going to die. There is no difference between the blood of human beings. And I don't care how dark the skin is or how white the skin is. Your blood is interchangeable. The only difference between black folks and white folks is the amount of melanin in the skin. And if you go to South Padre, anywhere, you see some fishermen that are in the sun all day. Mm-hmm. It's dark as mine. Does that make them less white? I don't think so. So how do we get hung up on race when there's only one? I, I, I don't know. All people, we all have the same blood running through our veins. Yeah, and getting to the point where we honor each life as sacred. You are me. I am you. You know, we're all the same. We are. I think we all have a lot of conditioning to overcome. And it sort of goes back to that thing I said about the mind. Our mind wants to categorize and we have to drop down into our heart and allow ourselves to see that. It's interesting that you mentioned I'm going to give you just one little anecdote before we get away. And uh, this happened a long time ago. I was given the time before my wife and I had children. We had a a couple that we lived near in San Jose, California. And I was given the task of babysitting that little girls at the time. And they were about four or five years old. So we lived in an apartment. And to keep them amused, I took them down to the sandbox in the apartment building complex where we lived. And there's this 
cute little white girl down there, and then we'll forget it. And she came up to me and uh, she said, don't you wish you were white? Uh -huh. And I said, no, sweetheart, why would I want to be white? She said, so you could get a tan. That is hilarious. I'll never forget that as long as So if I was white, I could get a tan. That's not really what I was expecting, <laughs> but that's that's really sweet. <laughs> so you could get a tan. <laughs> So, uh, so that's the advantage of being white is you can get a tan. You can get a tan, yeah. <laughs> that should be the title of your book. So you, you can get, get a tan. So you can get a tan. And I hope we can all do as you say and ask ourselves what it would mean to live happily ever after and create that vision for ourselves. I think that's a super powerful thing you do for those kids. Well, thank you so much. I hope it has been of some value. I hope you can use it. Hope somebody hears it that uh, that needs an encouraging word. <laughs> needs an encouraging word. We're all in this together, and let's stop fighting each other and tearing up our house. And on this planet together with one blood. We're one blood. I hope we can meet in person for a taco soon. I miss that. I, I do too. So thank you and have a good day now. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.